All right. Wow. Now, Jim was talking earlier about, you know, why do we use hymnals? When I grew up going to Camp Penile, I remember many, many nights when I was in high school and college and after just sitting around the, the, the piano in the lodge and just singing for, you know, a couple of hours or more. We would just sit and sing hymns over and over again. And it's just such, I mean, that's just spontaneous worship as we do that. And that's just, just fabulous. I so enjoy that. We've done that several times the last three or four years. Uh, so that's been been really good. So welcome back for our for our evening service. I'm trying to figure out what page I'm on here. Okay, t- tonight get ready. It's over with tonight. So we have had a a marvelous time of biblical fellowship, fellowship around the Word, fellowship with each other as a result of our being in Christ, walking together by the Lord. And so we come together tonight in order to finish up this year's conference, but we have next year's to look forward to. And so uh, we need to open in prayer, being reminded that we're coming before a holy God. And we are, even though we are positionally righteous, there are times that we are experientially unclean, as Isaiah realized when he was before the throne of God. And so we should take time to make sure that we are right right with God, walking by the Spirit, and if necessary, we should confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've just sung here at the front, we recognize your power. We sing the mighty power of God, and we hail the mighty power of God. And Father, we recognize that you are the king of all creation, and you have created us. You have created all things, and more than that, you have redeemed us, and you have sent your Son to pay the price for our sin that by simply trusting in him alone, we have forgiveness of sin. We are cleansed positionally. Though we sin at times, we also have the grace provision of confession so that we can recover and continue our spiritual growth. Now, Father, as we come together to worship you and to study your word about worship, we pray that we might be able to focus our attention upon you and upon your word and that God the Holy Spirit will use your word to bring us closer to you and to sanctify us experientially. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand together. We're going to sing the new hymn. It's 190 and 191. We pasted over two pages. On the first page, on the first stanza, there's a word left out in, a, in each verse right at the, towards the right side, so you just have to guess. Since it's not there, it's a sanctified guess. You can usually figure it out. So let's stand together. This is, I know that my Redeemer lives. Great song to sing all the verses, to sing it at, uh, on Resurrection Sunday. Teach it to your congregations. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Taking up from verse 3, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. If our wonderful studies this great and blessed week on worship have brought us to anything, I hope it's a realization that this is always about participation. It's not about what's sung to you to entertain you. It's about the whole body of Christ raising our voices in song together, corporately, as an expression of our eternal unity in Jesus Christ by his sacrifice. It's about participation. When the word is taught, you're not just a passive unit. You're actively taking in and digesting God's wonderful word. You're letting it change your mind to be more like God's. And there's another opportunity that we have to participate. And that was, we know the book of Philippians was written in part as a thank you letter. And I think that what Paul is saying in this verse, or in these verses here, is he's thanking the Philippians, thanking God rather for the Philippians' participation in his ministry. And so I'd like to propose something shockingly controversial to wake you up so much that your wallet will fall right out of your back pocket. (laughs) It's quite possible, and in fact, it's my interpretation. Feel free to take it up with me later. After all, we're all going home after this. Is that when we have these wonderful words that are uh, important to many of us, that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this is often used for the ultimate success of our sanctification. And while that is true and preserved elsewhere in God's word, I think what Paul is saying here is that the gift that they'd given him made them partakers of his gospel effort, and that gospel effort was going to continue on and on and on until the day of the rapture. When you participate in the proclamation of God's word, when you participate in these things, you have a part in the working of God throughout the world. And so we're going to give you this wonderful opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the Schaefer Conference and in Schaefer at large. So are we passing up? Do we have plate passers? Okay. I will pray for us and you know what to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed time. Lord, we are overcome by your amazing grace, the freedom to meet the Holy Spirit, to fill and illumine the wonderful word taught and proclaim your worship and praise sung with the body. What a taste of heaven ahead. All bringing our focus on your son, Jesus Christ. Please accept this sacrificial offering. Our response to your amazing grace. May it come from hearts filled with love and cheer. And evermore a desire to surrender to and know you. More and more with each passing day in great anticipation of the time when we're face-to-face with your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this evening to the 137th Psalm. Psalm 137 this evening. I want to express my deep appreciation for the privilege of being part of this conference again this year. I hope the next time will be soon. It's a wonderful joy to be with like-minded believers and to discuss the things of the Lord together. My desire this evening is to draw a lot of the strands of the discussion throughout the week together with this psalm, Psalm 137. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. 
For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. One commenter wrote about Psalm 137, Most psalms are cherished by Christians. This one is not. (laughs) This is certainly, if you look at the construction, the poetry, even the Hebrew grammar, this psalm is one of the most beautifully constructed, picturesque, carefully crafted poems in all of Scripture. But it is also true that it is one of the most disturbing psalms. Surely of all the psalms in the 150 psalms of the collection, this one has no relevance to us, right? This one has no direct application for Christians. I mean, the hymn writer Isaac Watts paraphrased almost every one of the 150 psalms in his collection of psalm paraphrases, and he interpreted those paraphrases in light of the New Testament, applying them to the New Testament church, and he didn't go anywhere near Psalm 137. How could this horribly depressing psalm be relevant for us today? But on the contrary, what I would like us to see this evening is that this psalm does indeed have profound relevance for Christians today. What I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to do two things with this psalm. First, I would like to look at this psalm. I want to look at the historical context, how this psalm fits in the broader context of Scripture, what the author of this psalm did through the psalm, how it connects to our present context. But then, after looking at Psalm 137, I hope that you will recognize the necessity of doing a second thing with this psalm. After we look at Psalm 37, I'd like to take a few moments to look through Psalm 137 and allow this God-inspired poem to do for us what God intended for it to do to its original audience and what he intends for it to do for us today as, as a poem, as a work of art, as a song. So let's begin by looking at Psalm 137. This psalm begins with this picturesque phrase, by the waters of Babylon. So to what does this refer? Well, we don't know for certain who wrote this psalm, but it was most certainly written by someone who had experienced the Babylonian captivity for himself. It may have been written shortly after the captivity ended or possibly sometime during the captivity, but the early period of Israel's captivity in Babylon is most certainly the immediate context for this psalm. And you you know the broad outlines of this event. King David, a man after God's own heart, had defeated Israel's most threatening enemies. He organized the plans for the building of God's temple in Jerusalem, the center of his true worship. And then David's son Solomon, the wisest man on earth, built the temple and dedicated it to the Lord in a grand festival in which God visibly displayed his presence to them. And yet during Solomon's reign... He married many foreign wives who brought with them false gods. He allowed false worship to take place under his own roof. And of course, inevitably, false worship began to permeate the nation of Israel. And this ultimately resulted, of course, in civil war after Solomon's death and the nation divided in two, Judah in the south ruled by Solomon's son Rehoboam, Israel in the north ruled by Jeroboam. 
King, King Jeroboam actually desired to bring the nation back to the Lord. And God promised Jeroboam that if he obeyed the law of God, then God would actually bless him and bless his royal line. But nevertheless, once again, false worship led to a curse. And this time it wasn't initially full-blown idolatry, but out of a pragmatic desire to keep his people from traveling to the temple in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, Jeroboam made two gold calves in honor of Yahweh and made temples for Yahweh and, and established a priesthood all on the pagan high places and he appointed men to lead this worship who were not Levites and God cursed him because of it. And the history of the nation of Israel from this point forward is almost all characterized by religious syncretism, mixing true worship with false worship, and eventually full-blown idolatry. On occasion, there's a relatively good king in the southern kingdom, but for the most part, both kingdoms are characterized by false worship. And God does not tolerate false worship. Because the people didn't keep his commandments, God, of course, allowed the northern kingdom to be defeated by Assyria in a series of invasions until finally in 722, Assyria completely defeated them and took the people captive. And the southern kingdom didn't fare much better because of their increasing idolatry. God raised up the nation of Babylon to invade the nation. And finally, in 586, the city of Jerusalem, along with its temple, were utterly destroyed. And in a series of deportations, the people were taken captive into Babylon. Even the Edomites, descendants of Esau, cousins of the Jews, you might say, aided the Babylonians in the destruction of Judah. And so now God's people were no longer in their land. God's people were in exile because of their sin. This is the context of Psalm 137. Here are God's people no longer in their land, no longer in their holy city, no longer in their temple. This psalm is is in the context of worship in exile. It was customary for Jews to gather for worship by a river because of the necessity of ceremonial cleansings and This was a practice that continued later for the building of synagogues. They were often constructed by a river because they needed to have these ceremonial cleansings. And so it is very likely that the setting of this psalm by the waters of Babylon refers to the attempt to gather for worship, but to do so in a strange land, in a foreign land, in exile in Babylon. And yet instead, they sat down and they wept. They hung up their lyres, the predominant instrument of accompaniment for temple worship. Their captors mocked them, sing us one of your worship songs. But the captive Hebrews couldn't. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They, they were God's people in a strange land. They had no homes. They had no place for worship. They were a unique people with a unique identity, but they were aliens and strangers. You see, when they were in the land... The nation of Israel, of course, existed as a theocracy, meaning God God was their ultimate ruler, and so the culture of their worship and the, the rest of the culture of their civilization fit together perfectly under the law of God, at least in theory. But now the Hebrews found themselves in a cultural situation that was hostile to their religion. They found themselves in a, in a cultural situation that was hostile to pure worship according to what the Lord had prescribed. In fact, two of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament are specifically meant to highlight how difficult it was for the Hebrews to worship God as he had commanded in a pagan setting. These are... um, among two of the first stories children learn in the Old Testament, Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. And in both of those stories, the matter in view is whether or not God's people will give into the pressure of their pagan captors and bow to false gods, or will they follow God's commandments and worship him purely? And of course, in both cases, it's the vast minority 
that actually obey God's law, most of the people forsake the true worship of God. They forget Jerusalem. They forget the temple. These are just another way of saying they forget the true God. And yet this is exactly what the psalmist wishes not to do. He does not want to forget God. He does not want to forget Jerusalem, the place of God's true, pure worship. He says that if he forgets the true worship of God, then may it it be that he loses the skill to even play on the lyre or to sing. He does not want to use these skills except in the worship of the true God. So this is the setting for Psalm 137. How can we worship God when we are so far from his appointed place of worship? How can we worship God when we are exiles in a land that is hostile to his worship? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Now, once again, understanding this context might further cause us to wonder how in the world could this psalm be relevant for Christians today? Surely we don't live under such depressing conditions, do we? Well, it's certainly true that the church today is not Israel. But both Israel and the church are unique peoples of God. And what is particularly instructive for us is that the New Testament authors often use language to describe our situation as the church today that refers to Israel's experience in exile by way of analogy. It's not equating the two, but New Testament authors use these images to create analogies, to create pictures that describe our situation as the church. For instance, consider even the idea of Babylon. In the New Testament, particularly in the, in, particularly in the book of Revelation, the title of Babylon is given to the enemies of God. And no matter how one takes the, the, the specific interpretation as to what exactly Babylon refers to in the book of Revelation, it becomes in the New Testament representative of everything that is contrary and hostile to God, contrary and hostile to his people, and contrary and hostile to his worship. And, and isn't that exactly how the scriptures describe this present age in which we live? How does the New Testament describe the world in which Christians find ourselves? Well, Galatians 1.4 calls it the present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 identifies the God of this world as one who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This one who Ephesians 2.2 calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus Christ himself said that this world hates him because he testifies about it that its works are evil. In other words, there appear to be striking similarities between the Babylon in which the Jews found themselves and how the New Testament describes this age in which we Christians find ourselves. Or think about the idea of Zion or Jerusalem. In Psalm 137, these are, this is a literal city. But even in the psalm, these titles represent more than a physical location. They represent the place where God's presence dwelt, the place of true and pure worship. And in the New Testament, the terms Zion and Jerusalem are likewise often used metaphorically in reference to the place of God's presence and true worship. Probably the most vivid example of this is a passage I've already referenced this week, Hebrews chapter 12, where in verse 22, the author is describing Christian worship, and he says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. God's presence is in the temple of heaven, and when we Christians worship, we are actually joining in the worship of heaven, uniting our voices with the innumerable angels in festal gathering and the saints who've gone before us. Ephesians chapter 2, 6 tells us that we Christians have been raised up with Christ and have been seated with him in the heavenly places. And in fact, in verse 19 of the same chapter, Paul calls us fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven itself. 
You see, when we consider how the New Testament describes this present age, it sounds a whole lot like Babylon. And when we consider how the New Testament describes our citizenship in a place of God's presence and worship, it sounds a whole lot like a distant city where we have our citizenship, but where we do not currently find ourselves. And to make this comparison even more apparent, consider how the Apostle Peter refers to the church today. 1 Peter 1.17 calls our current situation as Christians the time of your exile. And chapter 2, verse 11 specifically calls us sojourners and exiles. In other words, we who are members of Christ's church in this present age, are, like Israel, God's people in exile. Like Israel, our citizenship is in Zion, a city far away where the presence of God dwells in his temple and pure worship takes place. Like Israel, we find ourselves by the waters of Babylon amidst a people whose ruler hates God and hates his worship and hates his people. Now, Christians in the first through third centuries recognized this very easily. They couldn't help but recognize their status as exiles because they were increasingly persecuted for their faith. They knew they were living in a cultural situation that was at enmity with what they believed. Yet something happened in the fourth century that led God's people to forget that they were sojourners and exiles. In 313, the Roman Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. And now, uh, I mean, that was a, a good thing, freed up the persecution. We, we Christians should never desire persecution. But then in 392, Emperor Theodosius declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, and he outlawed all other religions. And in essence, the church and the state eventually united, forming what we sometimes call Christendom, the the Holy Roman Empire. And and church leaders, like I talked about yesterday, literally wanted to turn the empire into a theocracy like Israel. But the problem is that God never intended this kind of church-state union for the New Testament church. Now again, many good things came from this. Much of the cultural production that came out of this period, the art and the literature and the music contained morals and values that are noble and good. And we can praise the Lord that in his providence that happened. But nevertheless, this union of the church with the broader culture lulled Christians into forgetting that we are exiles. And so the Protestant reformers, especially Luther and Calvin, argued against this church-state union, but they continued to retain a connection to one degree or another. The Church of England especially, as, as, as the name indicates, maintained a very close union of church and state. It really wasn't until the early English separatists Baptists and others that we find a clear articulation of a need to recover a separation between church and state. This this emphasis of separation of church and state influenced the founding of the United States of America. But nevertheless, the effects of Christendom can still be observed today. I mean, how many Christians today really consider themselves sojourners and exiles? How many Christians recognize that their citizenship is in another world and that we are currently living in Babylon? And yet, still, is the church's situation really that bad? I mean, is it really as bad as Psalm 137? I mean, our culture doesn't seem as bad as Babylon, does it? I mean, do we really need to separate ourselves completely with those, from those around us and, re, and, and retain a, a complete and utter distinct identity like Israel did? Do we really need to do that? But, but that's not exactly even the correct picture for Israel, though. I mean, consider what the prophet Jeremiah 
commanded the people as they were being taken off into Babylon. What did the prophet Jeremiah say to these people being taken into exile? Jeremiah 29 verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, here is my message to you exiles. Build houses and dwell on them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may increase there and not be diminished. And notice what he says in verse 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will find peace. You see, God did not even expect his people Israel to remain completely and utterly distinct from their captors in every respect. In fact, they were supposed to build houses and plant gardens and get married and have children, and they were even supposed to seek for the welfare of the city. We see this kind of thing exemplified with one of the very stories I mentioned a moment ago. Daniel refused to stop praying to Yahweh. He would not pray to the king, and he would not eat the meat that was associated with pagan worship. And yet, he willingly allowed himself to be educated in the literature and language of Babylon and even served in political leadership, as others of the children of Israel did as well. So considering Jeremiah's instructions, plant gardens, build houses, Seek the welfare of the city. Why is the psalmist so distraught in Psalm 137? Well, remember the primary focus of this psalm. The emphasis here is not on building houses and planting gardens or education or political involvement. That's not the focus in Psalm 137. Remember, why are they by the rivers of Babylon? The specific focus of Psalm 137 is worship. You see, when Israel lived in their own land, when they existed as a theocracy, worship and culture were perfectly intertwined. But now that they are in exile in a, in a foreign land, there is a strong antithesis between their worship and pagan worship. There is absolutely nothing in common between true worship and false worship, and the pagans are actually hostile toward the worship of Yahweh. But... There is much commonality between the everyday life of the Israelites and the everyday life of the Babylonians. Building houses, planting gardens, marriage and family, governing literature and education. So how can this be? Well, a couple of reasons. First, because all people are made in the image of God. Even unbelieving pagans still have the image of God, even though it's certainly marred by sin. But it's there nonetheless. So even unbelievers can do relatively good things. Not ultimately in the eyes of God, but, they, but unbelievers can, can, can plant fruitful gardens. I mean, the hanging gardens of Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Even, even unbelievers can build structurally sound houses. Even unbelievers can devise successful political systems. They can produce worthy art. They can teach things that are true because of the image of God. And even more, they can do worthy things not only because of the image of God, but also because of God's common grace. The Bible teaches that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He shows general non-salvific grace even to unbelieving people such that they can be successful in regular, regular earthly endeavors. And, and in those kinds of earthly activities, therefore, God's people can stand alongside unbelieving people participating in and contributing to society. And in fact, God commands his people to actually seek the welfare of the city and to pray on its behalf. Why? Because since they are living in exiles in this land, its welfare is their welfare. 
There is much commonality between the everyday lives of God's people and the everyday lives of the people of Babylon. But when it comes to worship, there is no such commonality. There is a strict antithesis between the belief system of God's people and the belief system of pagan people. There is a strict antithesis between the worship of God's people and the worship of pagan people. And that is what is specifically in view in Psalm 137. Its focus is not on everyday life. Its focusing is on gathering by the river for worship. The songs of Zion are not the everyday folk songs of the people. They are the songs of corporate worship in the temple. The longing for Jerusalem is not merely a longing for a city, but a longing for its center of worship. And folks, the same is true for the New Testament church. Jesus was very clear. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Contribute to society. Why? Because the welfare of the city is also our welfare. A healthy government that protects the innocent and punishes injustice is a good thing, even if that government is pagan. In the context of teaching Christians how to live as sojourners and exiles, Peter specifically says that we should submit to earthly authorities and even honor them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Why? Because the welfare of the city is also our welfare. Government was instituted by God himself in Genesis chapter 9. And inasmuch as governing officials rule with equity and justice, they are doing exactly what God intends for them to do, even if they are unbelieving people. Like Jeremiah, Paul commands in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Now I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The welfare of the city is our welfare. You see, there is a very real sense in which we Christians, very similar to Israel in in exile, are dual citizens. We are first and foremost citizens of a future city, the heavenly Jerusalem, where the presence of God dwells and where he is worshipped in truth and purity. But we are also citizens of the present earthly city in which we contribute to society, submit to and pray for governing authorities, and participate in the various aspects of cultural endeavors. But the important reality we must recognize is this. While we, like Israel, may legitimately build houses and plant gardens and participate in the political process and enjoy the literature and education in the foreign land in which we find ourselves as exiles, our worship must remain distinct. We, like Israel, need to recognize ourselves in a situation in which true worship will always be at odds with the prevailing beliefs and values of the world. True worship will always be mocked and maligned by unbelieving people. True worship will always be countercultural to pagan worship. There is commonality with regard to the everyday aspects of life, but there is a strict antithesis when it comes to matters of belief and value and worship. But unfortunately, in some ways, the difference between those two categories is, is perhaps more difficult for us to discern today than it would have been for Israel in exile. I mean, when the authorities commanded Daniel to stop praying to Yahweh and instead pray to the king... That was a very clear uh, example of antithesis between true worship and false worship. It was very clear. When the authorities commanded the people to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, that was a very clear case of antithesis between true worship and false worship. But the problem is that false worship today is not always so blatantly obvious. This is partially true because of the fact that we're still seeing the lingering effects of the medieval union of church and state, especially in America. 
False worship is often packaged in wrappings that make it look less overtly pagan. But the other reason is, is, the, is the secularization of the West following the, the age of reason. We, we don't have pagan kings commanding us to bow down and worship huge statues of themselves. We don't see altars and human sacrifices taking place around us because, because the sophisticated modern mind doesn't believe in those supernatural things anymore. But, but think about it with me for a moment. Our Babylon is no less pagan. It's, it's, just a more, it's just a more sophisticated kind of paganism. It's a paganism that doesn't worship the idols of gold or bow down to kings as gods. Rather, our Babylonian paganism worships financial prosperity and hedonism and entertainment and immorality and self. And really, when you think about it, does not our Babylon sacrifice virgins? We just do it in a more sophisticated way. And does not our Babylon also sacrifice infants? We just do it before they're even born. This is why the message of Psalm 137 is so relevant for us today. We, we are God's people living in exile. We are supposed to submit to our authorities. We are supposed to participate in society and pray for the welfare of the city. But when we gather for worship, we find ourselves in a culture that is diametrically opposed to us. And so Psalm 137 is given to us by God in order to teach us something about worship in exile. Now let's consider once again the immediate context of this psalm. Imagine that you are a Hebrew. Your home has been destroyed. Your temple and your capital city have been decimated. Hundreds of your neighbors have been brutally murdered, including many women and children. In fact, the invading armies have smashed the skulls of your infants against the rocks. And now you've been taken into captivity in a foreign land and you are attempting to gather for worship even though you are not in Jerusalem, you are not in the temple, you have none of the sacred implements of worship. How would you feel? What would you be thinking? Well, thankfully, we don't have to simply wonder what we would be feeling. Here, Psalm 137 doesn't just simply tell us about the historical facts of worship and exile. It doesn't just describe to us the thoughts and feelings of the Babylonian uh, captives. No, this psalm actually enables us to experience for ourselves the thoughts and feelings of God's people in exile. Because a psalm is not a dry statement of historical facts. A psalm is not even a carefully crafted narrative. A psalm is a song. It is a work of art. It is a poem. And the purpose of a poem is, is, is not simply to tell us facts. The purpose of a psalm is to artistically embody more than just bare information. A poem allows the author to express aspects of experience that are deeper than just abstract words. A poem allows a reader to experience for himself the realities of the image that the poet paints in a way that would not be possible if the poet had simply described the experience in a detached fashion. You see, when we read a poem, like a psalm, we enter into the world that the poet creates. We walk with him through the experience and we are able to experience for ourselves what the poet intends for us to experience. This is true, by the way, for all art. This is what we've been talking about all week. It's true for poetry, for music, for literature, for painting. The artist creates a world into which we enter and experience the message the artist has for us. This is why when we are evaluating the meaning of art, like what we sing in worship, we need to evaluate more than just what the art says. We also need to discern what the art does. 
And so what does Psalm 137 do? I mean, here here is an inspired poem. A poem inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a human composition, but this is also in some supernatural way that we don't fully understand. This is a divine composition. This is not just any old expression of human experience. This is, as as sometimes psalms are described, God-centered interpretation of experience. So Psalm 137 is, is an artistic composition that allows us to enter experientially what the Hebrew exiles experienced as they attempted to worship God in a hostile land. And because it is God's word, it does so in a way that what we experience in this art is a God-centered interpretation of that experience. It is exactly what God wants us to experience as people in exile. Now, in, in some ways, that may seem even more disturbing. I mean, does God want us to pray for the children of our enemies to be dashed upon the rocks? I mean, we, we read the final three verses of this psalm, and we are disgusted. We, 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 we pull back in horror. But folks, that is exactly the point. That is exactly what God wants us to to feel. He wants us to feel horror and disgust at the notion of rebellion against God, at the notion of the adulteration of his worship and the destruction of his people. The author of Psalm 137 says what he says, not as an example of what we should literally pray against our enemies. This is, this is not the author's unbridled expression of rage and vengeance in the moment of passion. No, this, this is a carefully crafted, complex poem. The author is using this language because this is exactly what the Babylonians did to the Hebrew infants. This is supposed to create horror and disgust in us. He uses this, this language to artistically capture the emotions of the experience of injustice and violence and exile. He uses this language as a way to say, as people in exile, you should not feel comfortable and at ease in your worship. You should not feel at home. You should feel horror and grief and sadness and disgust at the violence and immorality and idolatry going on around you. But also keep in mind that what the psalmist is praying for here in Psalm 7 and 8 is exactly what God had already promised he would do through the prophet Isaiah. God had promised that one day he would bring his people back to the land and he would utterly destroy Babylon. God had promised this. And so not only is this a prayer of horror and grief, and grief, but it is a it is a prayer of trust and confidence in the promises of God. God, you said you're going to do this, and I believe it. And so this is why, as God's people in exile, reading a psalm about another people of God in exile, we need to go beyond simply looking at what this psalm says. We, we need to look through this psalm, through this God-inspired interpretation. We need to consider our experience today as God's people in exile through the lens of this God-inspired interpretation of the experience of literally being in exile. And so what I would like to do now is to walk again through each of the three stanzas of this poem. And as we do, allow the poetry to inform you, to inform you as to how you should feel as one of God's people seeking to worship him in exile. Let's allow this poem to do for us what God intended for it to do. Let's begin with the first stanza, verses 1 through 4. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Here we are, God's people, gathered together to worship him. We gather for worship, but we do so not in Zion, not in his temple, but in a foreign land. We are, we are citizens of another place. Our home is in heaven with God, but in the providence of God, we are here in exile. The ruler of this land hates our God. The people of this land hate our God. In fact, they mock us when they see how we live and how we act. We don't participate in their idol worship. We don't participate in their immoral behavior. And for this, we are mocked. For this, we are scorned. We are condemned as intolerant and unloving. Sometimes even our lives are threatened. And yet some of our own people are being tempted to give in under the pressure of such scorn. The command goes out to bow down to the idolatrous values of this age and some of our own people, people who claim to be worshipers of the true God out of fear of being mocked or perhaps in fear of their lives, some of our own people crumble under pressure and bow down just like all the pagans. And here are we few who have not yet bowed, who have not yet given in. What can we do but weep? How can we worship God in such a situation? How can we worship him when we aren't in his holy city and many of our own people have begun to worship the God of this age? They have forgotten Jerusalem. They have forgotten God. What are we to do? Stanza 2, verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves, or perhaps better yet, because of the situation in which we find ourselves, we must worship. That is the only response. We must not forget the heavenly Jerusalem and all that it represents. It represents God's instructions that he has given to us for how he wants to be worshipped. It represents worship that is holy and distinct from pagan worship. It represents sweet communion with God in his presence through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, that he provided himself. And we must not forget it. We must not cease to worship. If we forget what God has said about worship, if we forget his holy temple and pure worship directed toward him alone, following his guidance, then it would be better than we just not worship at all. If we dare forget Jerusalem and instead bring in the pagan world into our worship, then it would be better that our tongues stick to the roof of our mouths so that we cannot sing. It would be better that we, that we lose the skill to be even able to to play an instrument. But we must not forget. We are citizens of Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And oh, do we long for that city. The great late medieval hymn expresses this so well. Jerusalem, the golden with milk and honey blessed. Beneath thy contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not what joys await us there. What radiance of glory, what bliss beyond compare. That great early American hymn, Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. When shall my labors have an end? The joys, when shall I see? Or that great hymn by John Newton, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. God, whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. 
We long to be in the presence of God, don't we? In his city, in his temple, where we will no longer fear our foes. And in fact, as we've seen from Hebrews chapter 12, through faith when we worship, we do come to that city. We join our voices with the angels in festal gathering and with the saints who have gone before us. And one day, one day soon, faith will be sight. And what we do now in faith, we will experience physically. But for now, while we are here in this strange land, we mustn't forget. We must worship God as he pleases, resisting religious syncretism and longing for our happy home. So what then can we do? What can we do who are trying not to forget, who are trying to worship God in a way that pleases him in an environment that is hostile to this and when some of our own people are compromising? What are we to do? Stanza 3, verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You see, we can do nothing else but to cry out to God and plead for him to act. We can do nothing else but trust in what God has promised he will do. And folks, God has promised that he will judge sin. He will bring vengeance upon those who battle against him and bring harm to his people. And and, and who is it? Who is it who will one day take vengeance on the enemies of God? Who is it who will, re, who will repay Babylon for what they have done to us? Who is it who dashes Babylon's children against the rock? It is one sitting on a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he shall strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we cry out with the psalmist, With grief in our hearts and tears in our eyes, remember, O Lord. And we cry out with the martyrs who even now surround the throne of God in heaven, saying, How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But folks, God promised that he will, and we can trust that he will keep his promise. And God has promised that our time of exile will have an end. One day we will enter the holy city. We will be in God's presence, free from sin, free from hostility, free from idolatry, free to worship God in purity and holiness, and God will keep his promise. In Revelation 21, John prophesies, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away.
And so we can cry out with the psalmist, with faith in Christ who is our Redeemer. Savior, sense of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, we acknowledge this evening that we are exiles in a foreign land. We long for our true home with you. We long for your coming again. We long for the establishment of your kingdom. We long to be in your presence, worshiping you without fear of hostility and even fear of our own sin getting in the way. But for now, you have placed us here. We praise you that in your common grace that we can participate in society. We can contribute to the, the, the city around us. But when we come to worship, please do not let us forget Jerusalem. Do not let us forget what you have taught us and commanded us regarding the purity of worship. And give us a renewed fervency to pursue worship that is pure and according to your word and not give in to the pagan pressures around us. We, we need your help in order to do this. And you have promised that you have, and so we trust your promise. And we long for that day when Christ will come and take us to you. And we pray that that day would come quickly. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you again, Scott. So basically you're saying like Daniel, like Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, like Ezekiel, that we must keep our distinctives. You know, holy, separate. When it comes to, to our beliefs, our Christianity, yeah. our worship, and at the same time we can participate in society. Right. But There's, we don't let the values of human viewpoint paganism right. come in and infiltrate and shape the values, the worship, the standards right. in the local church. Right. Anybody have any questions? Anything over the course of what Scott's taught today or the conference or anything else? No questions? Anybody tired? <laughs> well, let's close out. I think we're supposed to have a closing hymn, which fits. Number 262, holy, holy, holy. Think of holy. It means unique, distinct, set apart to the service of God. That what goes on in worship in our spiritual life is not similar to what goes on in the world, the cosmic system. So let's stand and close with... One more thing. And one other thing, remember that this is, this is the hymn that is being sung even now around the throne. We're joining in with the seraphim as they sing this. I mean, not exactly, but close. My Father, we're so thankful for this conference. Thankful for Scott, thankful for Alan, for the way you have led them, taught them, and they have matured in your word to lead, guide, direct, teach us. Father, to give us a, an understanding that worship is more than coming, reading our Bibles, listening to mentally stimulating things about the Bible, and taking notes and keeping our notebooks. But it moves beyond that, that this is our opportunity to show the centrality, the significance, the importance that you are in our lives, in our thinking, in our marriages, in our families, in every aspect of our life. 
that we might go beyond wherever we've gone in the past in terms of thinking about worship, that we ratchet it up just a little bit so that we begin to apply that which we have heard. And Father, we pray you'll watch over us as many are going to airports and traveling and there's so much going on with with this uh, virus that is going everywhere. We pray for safety. We pray that we might be wise in how we handle this situation in our different circumstances. And we trust in you to watch over us, protect us, strengthen us, and give us uh, opportunity to be a witness of stability and the hope that we have in Christ to those who are so fearful in the midst of this, this virus and the various things that are going on today. And we pray that we may be a faithful witness. In Christ's name, amen.